0: First of all, I don't want my remarks about the uh, uh, remarks about the czar to be misconstrued. I, I just don't want to make a judgment. I don't know enough about him to make that judgment. That is the province of the Russian Church to judge whether or not he was worthy of uh, veneration or not. It seems that probably he will be because the popular popular movement in Russia seems to be. Uh, Toward, toward that. Um, I'll do more reading in due time and maybe come to an opinion myself, but I, I just have not focused uh, so much on that. The question was asked yesterday also, what was uh, the Russian church outside of Russia's view of the autocephaly of the OCA? Uh, and I said there, that there was, or what was the connection? I said there was no connection. And the reason is they believe that the Moscow Patriarchate was totally corrupted by the soviet system and therefore they accept no decision made by the moscow Patriarchate under any circumstances and they saw the ocas autocephaly as a political ploy by the moscow Patriarchate to destroy uh, the influence of the synod the russian church outside russia so they saw it in terms of their own um, their own uh, experience further in recent years, the last two years, the accusation is being made that Metropolitan Nicodem, who was the, one of the ones who negotiated the autocephaly on behalf of the uh, Patriarchate of Moscow, uh, was a closet Catholic, unquote, that secretly he was a member of the Roman Catholic Church. I'll just leave that one right there. As I also mentioned, uh, the, in the last number of years, there has, the, the Russian church outside of Russia has developed a theological raison d'etre, reason for existence. And I want to trace part of the history of uh, how that theological reason for existence uh, for, has, has developed. And uh, note some groups that you may have heard of uh, that are go under the umbrella of the old calendarists uh, movement and at least help you to place them in the uh, not all of them I, that's impossible <laughs> uh, to place all of them but but uh, but some of them let's step back a moment to uh, a name that you will recognize from our earlier uh, lecture and that is um, malicious metoxicus is that right pronunciation so Okay, thank you. I lost that. Uh... Thank you. In 1920, the uh, Ecumenical Patriarchate issued a uh, call to the churches of Christ, wherever they may be, uh, to uh, form a, uh, an organization or a league for discussion of uh, a number of issues to in, in, uh, improve the communication between the churches. And the goal was expressed that uh, ultimately, a uh, union could be had between all of, all of the uh, churches of Christ. And in fact, that encyclical of 1920 of the Ecumenical Patriarchate is uh, even cited by the World Council of Churches as being the um, document that spurred the uh, gathering together of the various, um, uh, various churches and is a uh, part of the overall ecumenical uh, movement. The issuance of that encyclical was very controversial uh, in Orthodox circles because uh, to many it implied an ecclesiology that was a a Protestant ecclesiology that is a branch theory Uh, in fact the use of that phrase to the churches of Christ abroad uh, indicated uh, to many that the patriarch was recognizing the ecclesial legitimacy of these other uh, these uh, other churches one of the goals that was, uh, or one of the suggestions I should say that was made in that document, uh, that could of something that could be done to foster Christian unity was the establishment of a common calendar for the celebration of, it says, major feasts uh, of the church. As you may recall, uh, even to to this day, we have a difference between uh, the. Roman Catholic churches and the Protestant churches and the Orthodox church in the celebration of the day of uh, Easter. Um, I'll get into that in just a moment. Um, I w- want to set a stage. In 1923 the uh, he had by this time become patriarch of Constantinople. Miletius uh, Metisaki, um called a Pan-Orthodox Synod in Constantinople to discuss a number of uh, issues. Now, uh, Metaxakis was a uh, forward-thinking, progressive kind of uh, action-oriented uh, person, and uh, the, the uh, Synod that he called in 1923 included representatives from the uh, Church of Serbia, Cyprus, Greece, and Romania. It was not therefore a pan-orthodox uh, synod because there were a number of um, churches that were not represented but in 1923 it would have been hard to get Russians and and so forth to uh, to come among the items on the agenda that were discussed at that uh, meeting uh, were a lot of things that were also being uh, at the same time suggested by the renovationist churches the the living church in the Soviet Union at that time including Um, allowing married bishops, allowing for priests to be uh, remarried, Um, the calendar issue uh, was uh, one of them, and a number of other uh, things that were perceived by many to be radical uh, reforms. The synod uh, adjourned with outreaching agreement on any of those issues except one uh, one major one, uh, at least some of the churches uh, agreed to. Not all of even those. Churches that were present agreed on this one, and that was to make an adjustment in the uh, celebration of the calendar. Now, let me give you a, I hope uncomplicated, (laughs) overview of the calendar issue. As you uh, may uh, remember, the uh, for uh, for hundreds of years the church had uh, operated on the same calendar that had been established by the Roman Empire, the so-called Julian calendar, named after Julius Caesar who instituted it in about 53 B.C., 51 B.C., thereabouts. And uh, that calendar, as you probably know, was um, set up on a basis of 365 and one-fourth days per year, and therefore uh, every fourth year there would be a leap year, and you know, that would kind of correct the situation. However, as you probably know from your grade school uh, science classes, the year is not 365 and a quarter days exactly, it's 365 uh, uh, days, four hours, 56 minutes, and some odd seconds. Now you think that's not a very big difference, and it really isn't, but almost 1,500 years have gone by without a corrective, And um, the the problem was by uh, 1550 or 1582 exactly, the calendar was 10 days off of what it was originally expected to be on one important point. Now here, uh, stay with me, okay? The Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., dealt in a canon with the issue of the celebration of the date of Easter. Now, there was discrepancies in the way that Easter was being celebrated in different parts of uh, of the church. Of particular concern to the fathers at Nicaea was um, the remnants of the so-called quarter deciman practice, which was the uh, idea of celebrating, of celebrating the um, Pascha on the 14th day of Nisan—that is the the, the uh, day that the Jewish Passover was was uh, celebrated—and in the churches in Asia Minor at the end of the second century and on into the third century, that was a common uh, practice. That issue had been addressed uh, by a number of uh, hierarchs in that in the second century and on into the third, and they were agreed to just disagree. Now, by the Council of Nicaea, however, they wanted to come up with a common uh, practice, and and as you may remember. The calculation for the date of Easter is as follows. The first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox. Now, the reason for that is that Passover, in the Jewish tradition, is the first full moon after the spring equinox. Therefore, Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead, then on the Sunday following the Passover. So therefore, we, in commemoration, we would have, the, we'd have to have the spring equinox, then the next full moon, and then the next Sunday after that is Pascha. Are you with me so far? According to the original Julian calendar, when it was set up by Julius, the equinox was supposed to be on March 25th. By 325, the equinox was no longer happening on March 25th. It was happening on March 21st. Therefore, in the canon of the Council of Nicaea, it says that Easter is to be celebrated on the first Sunday after the first full moon, after March 21st, the vernal equinox, and not with the Jews. Which meant also that little caveat there, uh, it's been debated as to exactly what that means, but uh, in common interpretation was if Passover falls on a Sunday, you wait till the next Sunday. By that formula, by the way, that's why if we're off by a week with the Western Church, that's why it's usually because of that, that Passover uh, calculation thing. Now, here's where the problem comes in is in the canon March 21st an observation or a command In other words is the equinox dated March 21st because the canon uh, because the council recognized that it happens on March 21st therefore it's March 21st or did they designate the date March 21st as the equinox whether or not irrespective of the whole uh, whether it's observably astronomically the equinox, to my mind, the issue is answered as an observation because they assigned the Patriarchate of Alexandria to issue a uh, statement, a letter every year, um, designating what day is is Easter based upon the calculations of the best astronomers in the world, which existed at Alexandria at that time. Now, in due time. The church moved away from having a, um, a uh, astronomically calculated equinox and picked March 21st on on that Julian calendar as the equinox date, just as a convention. March 21st is the equinox, so the next full moon, the next Sunday after that full moon, that's Pascha. All right. Now, what happened over? Some more centuries by 1582 there were 10 days difference between the observed equinox and march 21st the equinox was backing up it was actually taking place on march 11th instead of on march 21st pope gregory and here's where the problem comes in pope gregory uh in uh, rome got his uh, astronomers to calculate a new uh, a new system and wanted to reorient the calendar so that March 21st actually was the observable equinox so that the celebration of Pascha would be in conformity with that date. Well, to do so, you had to do something with 10 days in the calendar. So he decreed that October 5th, 1582 would be followed by October 15th, 1582. Okay? Are you with me? And in all Roman Catholic countries, that took place. That was the beginning of the so-called Gregorian calendar, named Gregorian after Pope Gregory. Now the, the difference now you may ask, what's this difference with the leap year thing? You know How could they correct that? Well, what they did was, uh, centennial years are not leap years, unless they're divisible by 400. In other words, 1,600 was a leap year, 1,700 was not a leap year, 1,800 was not a leap year, 1,900 was not a leap year, 2,000 will be a leap year. And that, according to the calculations, keeps things squared away for a few hundred years uh, <laughs> uh, down the way. Okay, now, now here's, here, that decree was made by papal fiat. The Protestant countries in Europe refused to accept it. And in fact, England did not accept it until 1728. The United States did not accept it until 1743. In fact, you may wonder, that's why the discrepancy in George Washington's birthday. He was born February 11th, Julian. But we celebrate his birthday when we used to do that when we were kids, on February 22nd, because it's February 22nd, Gregorian, okay? Orthodox countries refused to follow the directions of the papacy for a couple of reasons. One, he's the Pope. (laughs) Two, they saw no need really to modify uh, the calendar. That whole whole issue of whether it was lined up with the equinox just didn't really bother the uh, Orthodox bishops at any particular juncture. Until the time of World War I. And in World War I, there were a number of changes that were taking place in the world scene. War, for one thing, and coordinating dates, uh, you know, when you're going to attack, when, and whatever. As civil governments began to shift to the Gregorian system, even in Orthodox countries, because all of the rest of the world was on that system, and, and doing a mental gymnastic shift was no good. Uh, and the communists, uh, the Bolshevik government in the Soviet Union immediately. One of the first things they did was shift to the Gregorian system. They, now, in that context, okay, any uh, discussion of a shift of the uh, calendar dating to the Gregorian system was uh, had two strikes against it. It had the strike of being the Pope's original order, and in Serbia and in and among the Russian faithful. It also had the strike of being a communist-imposed uh, calendar dating system, and in fact, I talked to a Serb priest who's a dear friend of mine, and that just grates so much on him that he he could never conceive of taking the communist calendar. Well, here's here's now. Can I just offer an opinion? Is my personal opinion that the Council of Nicaea intended a, an observable equinox. That they actually moved the date, if they were going to pick an arbitrary date, they could have stuck with March 25th, but they actually moved it to the observable equinox date on March 21st. The assignment, as I said, of the, the uh, responsibility to the Patriarch of Alexandria with his astronomers seems to be to make, to make sense. And in fact, one might argue, that according to the Council of Nicaea, now listen carefully, the date of the equinox is actually the real March 21st. You understand what I'm saying? When the equinox occurs, really, is March 21st. Therefore, one might argue, that the real, August 15th, or the real December 25th, or the real January 6th, is based on whatever system indicates March 21st as the vernal equinox. Therefore, and this is my opinion, the idea of shifting to Gregorian, so-called Gregorian dates for fixed feasts, Could be construed as actually following the canon of the Council of Nicaea to the letter. Am I clear? Now, the problem was, the problem was in 1923, of course, that uh, uh, a number of the churches didn't, first of all, didn't feel that. Compunction, the necessity to move those uh, dates, especially with regard to Pascha, and in fact, what the synod decided to do was to leave the Pascha calculation exactly the way it had been for, you know, centuries and centuries. Um, But a number of the churches, including the patriarchates of Antioch, uh, Romania, Greece, the uh, the Church of Greece, uh, in particular, uh, shifted their Fixed dates to coincide with the Gregorian dates. In other words, uh, you know, the date that the rest of the world was using as August 15th was that date. Now, a number of the churches, Serbia, Russia, etc., uh, remained on the Julian system, and that's why there is now 13 days difference between um, the the uh, date of Christmas, say, that we in in, uh, the Antiochian Archdiocese celebrate on December 25th. The Serbians will be celebrating on January 7th. Now, it isn't that they're celebrating on January 7th. They're really celebrating on December 25th, Julian calendar. You see what I'm getting at there? Okay. The other thing that was criticized was the motivation. A number of... um, critics believe that the goal of moving the calendar was a hidden ecumenist agenda, that is a faulty ecclesiology that was designed to uh, incorporate or to unify the Orthodox Church with all of these heretical uh, churches, whether it's the Protestants or the Catholics or whomever it was out there, and that therefore underlying this was not any kind of theological consideration, but rather a... a, uh, uh, a heretical theological agenda, and in fact that word heretical is, is used, and the heresy is called ecumenism. Sometimes it's called pan-ecumenism because uh, it, it refers to, uh, or the pan-heresy of ecumenism because it is considered to be the mother of all heresies in the, uh, in the modern uh, world those that adopt this viewpoint that it is the pan-heresy look at anything that resembles influence from churches that are outside the orthodox orbit as being uh, suspect Uh, everything of course from the 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 calendar issue of course is a major thing but uh, changes in uh, clerical dress Uh, in some uh, in the United States in particular, uh, Orthodox clergy have adopted uh, different modes of, of dress, sometimes dressing like the Roman Catholic or, or the Lutheran uh, pastors uh, might, rather than uh, wearing the traditional um, cassocks and, 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 and so forth. And that is seen not just as a cultural adaptation, but as a uh, uh, subtle Influence of the ecumenist heresy on the tradition of, of the church. And so groups that reacted to, to uh, this, this change generally look at any kind of compromising situation or any kind of situation that appears to them to be compromising with the world as being a betrayal at some level of uh, the faith. Now coming out of this, there was a number of groups that refused to accept this this decision. In Greece itself, there was uh, the development of an old calendarist movement that has, uh, over the years, divided into at least three uh, subdivisions. I say at least because one characteristic that remains constant of all these old calendarist groups is division. They divide among themselves they keep on seeing, they seem to fragment into multiple uh, things and, and in my opinion it's because uh, of the foundation upon which they, they start, the premise on which they start, that is uh, if you are trying to isolate yourself as a pure group on, on a particular issue you separate on the basis of being pure on that issue, well when something else comes up you separate again on the basis of maintaining purity there And then you separate again on the basis of maintaining purity there, and a whole spirit of uh, exclusiveness begins to develop. Now, there are ranges of opinion among these uh, these, uh, old calendarist groups. In Greece, there are, as I mentioned, three. Two of them are more extreme. One is more uh, moderate. The extreme groups believe um, that... One group is called the Matthewites, the other are followers of Metropolitan Adzintius. Uh The Matthewites believe that only their group retains the mystery of the sacrament of the Orthodox Church, and anyone outside that particular group is not Orthodox in any way, shape, or form. The uh, Auxentius group uh, is a little bit more moderate, but it does believe that the Church of Greece since the calendar reform is without grace. There's a more moderate group that would uh, argue that there is grace somehow, but they're, they're treading on it by giving in to the, uh, the, the heresy. Now, this third group is the overarching group that covers the uh, um, movement that you might have heard of that's based in Etna, California, uh, Metropolitan Chrysostomus. Uh, he is under this third more moderate old calendarist group uh, out of um, Athens metropolitan chrysostomus of phil is the the uh... now this group that I just mentioned is in communion with uh, some other old calendarist groups, including the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia, which reminds me of father mark 's question at the break. He wanted me to note that uh, the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia uh, worldwide claims 350 churches and parishes, uh, 20 monasteries and convents, one seminary in Jordanville, New York, um, 330 some odd priests, 100 deacons, 100 monks, and 150 nuns. Now this, uh, this uh, old calendar Greek uh, church, Metropolitan Chrysostomos, uh, is in communion with uh, it, first of all, the true can, the, it's called the True Orthodox Church of Greece, Synod in Resistance. There are about 130 parishes uh, worldwide in that uh, group. Also, they're in communion with the True Old Calendar Church of Romania, about 110 churches there in Romania. Um, the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia, and also the True Old Calendar uh, Church of Bulgaria. Now there are a number of other old calendarist groups, breakoff groups. Some uh, generally, uh, some of them, like like uh, the one that uh, is under uh, Bishop Pancratius, um, uh, which the Christ the Savior Brotherhood. Some of you may be familiar with that. Uh, came under a number of years ago as an offshoot of. Uh, uh, Of these he was um, let me here's the point many of these groups are are led or have clergy that were defrocked in other jurisdictions and and went to those jurisdictions they do not recognize the defrocking or the suspension because they believe that those churches are are not any longer having grace and therefore they uh, set themselves up as having being the only the only true Orthodox Church or whatever. So you have a difficult canonical situation. Eric? If they don't the Bible, do they not the Bible in the first place? Well it gets to be um, confusing. Sometimes they will actually rebaptize and re ordain people, even people who were baptized in a an Orthodox church that is in communion, say, with the Patriarchate of Moscow or something like that, they may indeed rebaptize those persons and uh, subsequently uh, re Because if you, if, if following their ecclesiology, they uh, believe that there is no grace in those churches whatsoever, they don't recognize the baptisms even of uh, canonical uh, Orthodox churches. Now, for sure. Uh, Some of these groups will take people who have been chrismated and require them to be baptized and ordained again. There was a situation a number of years ago where some people who were in one of the AEOM parishes went to an old calendarist uh, Greek uh, group and those persons had been chrismated in, uh, in the Antiochian Archdiocese and had been ordained clergy in the Antiochian Archdiocese went to this old calendarist group. They were baptized again and required to be ordained again if they were going to um, serve in those jurisdictions. Thanks be to God in that particular situation. Those clergy, after about a year, said this is not right and returned to uh, the Antiochian Archdiocese. And actually, are good sources for uh, discussion about some of these issues of traditionalism and and uh, so forth in the in in the church. Um, all right, so there's a number of these groups out there. Um, they seem to, at the present time, uh, um, the strongest of these, these groups is the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia. Uh, still, with Rokor, most of its membership is um, Russian immigrant uh, persons, but there's an increasing number of converts that are finding their way into that, uh, that, that jurisdiction. I can't go into all of the different jurisdictions there and, and uh, handle it. I do want to make one uh, more comment on this issue, and then I'll open it up for uh, any questions that you, that you might have. Uh, Yaroslav Pelikan, in a book called The Vindication of Tradition, uh, made a comment that has stuck with me for a number of years. By the way, many of you may know that Yaroslav Pelikan is one of the premier Church historians of the 20th century His uh, history of the Christian tradition In five volumes is, is uh, monumental uh, He was a Lutheran uh, Until just a few years ago When he was uh, brought into the Orthodox Church At St. Vladimir's uh, Chapel uh, On the Feast of the Annunciation I forget which year now but uh, So I'm quoting an Orthodox Christian now <laughs> He said Tradition is the living faith of our fathers. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Tradition is the living faith of our fathers. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Now, what he was getting at was that there is a... a uh, a kind of a, uh, of a tradition that, it, that is living, that is empowered with the Holy Spirit, that is the, the, the life of the Holy Spirit in a community and that teaches us and that shapes us and makes us into godly, virtuous people. And that's the tradition that we want to get into the, the midst of the flow. It includes the dogmas and teachings of the church. It includes, includes the worship of the church the, and, and, uh, and, and so forth. What he was saying, however, is that sometimes, uh, but, the, but those traditions in any given age need to be experienced and lived genuinely from, with, from the heart and from within that uh, uh, the, the experience of the people uh, of God. And that means that there will be differences from culture to culture, differences from age to age, and yet the core is going to be the same. To quote Father Alexander Schmemann again, 1980, Detroit dialogue, he said, and I quote, we must forever change in order to remain the same, unquote. And the idea is that there is a, a, a livingness to the, uh, the, the tradition, that we can't quite do the same thing uh, today that was done in 19th century Russia and expect to have the transforming power of the Holy Spirit at work uh, in, in us. Now, that's what the Holy Spirit led to be done in 19th century Russia. But there is a livingness to to the uh, tradition. The fathers of the church were not afraid to cre- be creative in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to... Uh, I, I'm off onto opinion, but please... St. Athanasius is one of my favorite saints, one of our favorite saints. He influenced our journey, and yet he was not afraid to argue for including a word in the creed that had not been used before in the same sense. That is the word homoousion, that Jesus Christ is of one essence with the Father. And that was a crucial word, right, Father John? Without that word, the faith wouldn't have been uh, preserved, and in fact, the, the argument at the Council of Nicaea wasn't whether he was right in the idea, but whether they should use a word that wasn't in the Bible to express that, that truth. And uh, the council decided that we would go ahead and we would use that, that, that word. And um, as the history of the church goes on, you see even the worship of the church develops from time to time. Hymns are written. We have a saint, St. Romanus the Melodist. Why is he a saint? he's a wonderful poet and, and hymn writer and he added the creative uh, uh, efforts of the, the inspired by the Holy Spirit to enrich all of us in, in, in the church, St. John of Damascus and uh, his wonderful hymns that are used in the funeral service for example, that didn't exist in the 3rd century, that was something that, that came out in the, um, St. John was the 8th, right, yeah, okay. And, and so in a, the point is, the fathers of the church were, were willing to allow the Holy Spirit to be creative and, and develop in, that, in that, that situation. While I would argue that we must, in, in as full a respect as possible, enter into the experience of the tradition of the church, we can't be afraid to allow the Holy Spirit to do a new thing in a new place in a new age and to express his will in a unique fashion here in America or wherever the the faith is going to be. If we just take rotely what was done in another age, we will end up in failure. We will end up being simply uh, just a museum piece, having a form of godliness but lacking the power now on the other hand you don't throw out the forms just to charismatically get the power you have to somehow come up with a creative tension in which the holy spirit uses the traditional forms that that we've been given and shapes us and molds us and leads us on now it is dangerous sometimes for converts like me to stand up and want to try to, you know, I mean, the, Father John alluded to it the other day when we were first brought into orthodoxy. Some of us had an agenda. <laughs> we want to change this, that, and this, and that, and the other thing. And again, I hearken back to dear Father Alexander. It's I probably coming clear to you how much influence he did have on us. <laughs> but he said, he told us uh, that, that when, you, when we get in the church, until we're 60 years old, he said, kiss everything in sight. Said <laughs> so kiss their rings, kiss their shoes, kiss whatever they tell you to kiss. Do what and then when you've experienced the life of the church, you have, have become shaped and taught by it, then you can stand up and say this is where there needs to be some kind of uh, potential reform because you have the experience going within within your uh within your heart and within your life, and it's not something just added on on the the outside. And I think he had an exceptionally good point. I get nervous, as a convert of only 12 years, with people coming into the church and being in the church for six months or a year and determining that they know everything that there is to know about what orthodoxy is about. Or because they've read a number of books or because they've been to a particular monastery and they want to duplicate what they see there, not recognizing that that, that perhaps that, that situation is not the same because the people are not the same in this context as they are in this one. the Holy Spirit blows as he wills, and he uh, wants and he shapes people differently. he meets people differently. I uh, have a a parishioner who has a number of children, four of them <laughs> and uh little all under six you know i mean i can't imagine trying to deal with all, all of that but she was feeling guilty because she wasn't able to do uh, all the prayers you know the, and so forth and i said you know what at this stage in your life what you're called to do is to take care of those children and you pray while you're taking care of those children and you pray for that child and you say the jesus prayer as as the day goes on and if you get five minutes of free time fine Go ahead and have your have your prayers, but God isn't necessarily calling you to fit into this particular image or mold that that you have of what Orthodox spirituality is about. Now there are those that are called to do all those prayers. Thanks be to God, do them. All I'm suggesting, though, is that that we can't put uh, God in a box, and I think that the the hyper-traditionalist movement that is represented in some of these, these uh, groups tends to see um, orthodoxy in too rigid, legalistic, and narrow uh, a, a fashion. To be sure, to be fair, they see themselves as defending the faith against uh, encroachments from the outside. And believe me, there are times we need to stand up and, and, uh, and do that but it seems to me to go too far when one narrowly defines the church to be this one very small group that one is a part of and everyone else in the orthodox church is without grace that's that's too far now uh much much more could be said about that but uh I'm not arguing against tradition. Those that know me know that I I am a traditionalist in many respects. When in doubt, do what the tradition is. (laughs) You know, that's... My wife will tell you that. but, But at the same time, I believe the tradition of the church is that the Holy Spirit builds as he wills and does grant each generation... Freedom to be creative in the Holy Spirit according to the needs of their particular age. St. Athanasius had to fight against the Aryan heresy. We have our own things that we need to struggle with uh, as well. St. Cyril and Methodius were called to go to, uh, you know, Russia. One just quick uh, example that hit today we went up to, uh, what was that place we went to? St. Well, yeah, right up there, Eklutna, That's I couldn't think of the Eklutna. And they had these little spirit houses, you know, on the, on the uh, grave sites. And, of course, the, the uh, traditionalist could, could say, well, that's a pagan custom. And it's adapting a pagan custom isn't really orthodox in the deep, long-standing sense. But what it was, was an adaptation of a cultural understanding of the Athabascan peoples of Alaska and, and, making, uh, and taking that cultural practice and, and shifting it to where it had a orthodox meaning that taught them something about the nature of death and the transition from this life and, and into the next, and therefore could be defended as an as a adaptation of the tradition for the needs of a particular people. I believe that the Holy Spirit gives us that kind of creative freedom to be able to uh, reach out to those around us. St. Paul said, I am become all things to all men that I may by all means save some. In Aiken, South Carolina, we had a uh, conference uh, a number of years ago in which a lot of Orthodox clergy from around the country came and uh, some were more traditional and were, uh, cassocks around town all the time, and I for three years have heard about all those psycho people that 's the term who came to our town, and when they find, find out i 'm orthodox, they go like this, you know, and it puts a barrier up that i 'm not necessarily in a southern Baptist town wanting to to do now on this, at the same time, I defend wearing. That's not the point. But you see, I I make a, and I may be wrong, but I make a judgment based on trying to reach out to people in that particular culture, not to put a barrier that is unnecessary in their way. Now, something that might be necessary, like icons, I'll put in their way. But what I wear is immaterial in some respects. Me. I may be wrong. Maybe going to hell. Pray for me. <laughs> Any questions? If uh, ten years from now the equinox occurs on the 19th, do we shift the calendar from 21 then from yeah. yeah. um, 21 back to 19? No, because what? The 19, No, because you, what I'm what I'm suggesting is just you just use whatever the equinox is. And that, and then you find the next full moon, and the next Sunday after that, and and okay. deal with it Don't that way. For the calendar. Right. I mean, just the yeah. numbers. Right. Okay. Right. Although the way it's set up, it's always going to be for at least the next few hundred years, right on that cusp between March 20th and March 21st. It's not, you know, nine o'clock at night on March 20th, or uh, something like that. The other thing that I, I, w- I just want to state that I think was probably a bad idea uh, for the church to do was to ch- make that change piecemeal. And just in my opinion, uh, if, you're, if we're going to make that radical change like that, it should have been done with more churches agreeing on it and doing it together. Rather than that would have avoided a lot of the division uh, things. On it. But then, in retrospect, his, mm-hmm. retrospect historically. But uh, in any event. I could deal with the whole calendar issue at some length. As some of you, I do have a tape floating around somewhere on, on the calendar issue. I think Don has it if you want to listen to that sometime. Don, you have a question? What should be our attitude toward these rivers rivers? Love. Um, might learn something from them. Uh, try to uh, re- reconcile uh, them. Remember, especially like in the case, with uh, the Russian church outside of Russia, who broke communion? They did. They said they're not in communion with anybody that's in communion with the Patriarchate of Moscow. We did not issue a judgment that said they're not in communion with us. Do you see the, the distinction there? So I'm saying, I would say we could learn things from them. We should treat them uh, with love. We should try to look for ways of of uh, reconciliation, I'm not real optimistic. Well if I'm not mistaken, I think the the a picture uh recently we can one or two of groups that are prominent in the persistent story and Green uh with the philosophy that fairly happy to be more than some sort of canonical oversight and keep allowing them to proliferate. Yeah. And uh that cause more patient. Yeah, I agree with the patriarch on that. The, the point is just being old calendar or not is not a barrier to communion. The Serbian church remains old calendar and the Russian church remains old calendar. We reach the Alaskan churches. We remain in communion Nonetheless, I mean, it's not, I just don't think that that's an issue that should be raised Yes, they do and we're in communion with them and so on too. I mean, this is an issue that does need to get resolved and perhaps if we ever have the Pan-Orthodox Synod that has been talked about for 75 years or so uh, ever meet we will we'll resolve some of these issues, but I'm not holding my breath on that either. <laughs> Other questions? Yeah. Well, they call it the Church's calendar. Um, the the old calendar is referred to by these these groups as the Church's calendar because. Um part of the emotional um uh, motivation for rejecting that was that there were saints' days that didn't get honored you know in that particular year, and that would that was uh considered to be you know not uh, a proper thing proper thing to do and that, that that's an argument that has some merit to it father Calendar. Right, the civil calendar or the Pope's calendar or the, uh, in the case of my Serbian friend, the communist calendar. <laughs> yes, Beth? Was the Senate church always legalistic and, um, or has it just now had to make itself that way because you implied now that it doesn't have... a Political reason to be Has it always been fundamentalist? And, I mean, um, well, I don't, I don't like that word that you just mm-hmm. use fundamentalist uh, because I think it's misused in this whole discussion very, uh, very much uh, and its meaning's unclear. What I would uh, suggest is that the, the hair splitting goes right back to the beginnings of that synod. When you're told to disband the synod and you get up and walk out of the room, and then come back in and reconstitute it, and say you've obeyed the directive. That's a legalistic hair splitting, you see, that that takes place. And I think there's a spirit of that kind of, of. Um, well, part of that part of that too is is the view that that the Orthodox tradition is a whole, that whatever was. Um, Received by them from their spiritual uh, fathers should be Handed on and passed on and should be preserved and therefore uh, there's a built-in conservatism that is th- that is part of that and that's not unhealthy uh, to have a Want to want to pass on what what uh, what one has received. So I don't want to go so far as to you know to reject that out of hand however however uh, when, when the focus then gets to be on defining whether one is orthodox or not by the externals that one is exhibiting, then it, be, it is in danger of being a legalism rather than a, uh, or a traditionalism in Pelican sense, rather than an uh, expression of the, the, the living tradition. That's a danger. It's not, I'm not accusing all of these people of having that viewpoint, but I'm saying it's a danger. Other questions? Yes. In in uh, there there would be schismatic in, as as opposed to um, something else entirely. You know, in other in, in other words, their view of the Trinity, their view of the Incarnation, their view of the sacraments, and generally speaking, would be identical with that of the rest of the the Orthodox world. But they're, particularly on this the the issue of ecumenism or the issue of uh, traditionalism, they would they would elevate that to a doctrinal Level that that other churches might not uh, agree with. By the way, I think the just one last statement. While I'm thinking about ecumenism, I think the the accusation that's made that we're giving up the ship in the ecumenical uh, movement uh, is is uh, not well placed because the Orthodox Church, in its experience in the uh, in the churches, has been saying, "Here we are. Here's our teaching and our faith, you accept this, or if you don't, then you know we hold them off at that, that kind of level. I don't think that, that the motivation is to bring union at any price, and that's the fear uh, that, that, that's involved there. Uh, those that are involved in the ecumenical discussions believe that we ought to be, uh, including our, our patriarch who said we ought to talk to anybody who will talk to us as a witness of Of uh, the faith, and I think there comes a point which is say this conversation isn't going anywhere, and maybe we ought to just back off of that. But, but nonetheless, I'm for talking to anybody who as as a witness of uh, of the the faith without giving up the store, so to speak. I probably have myself in deep hot water now, but. change a lot of things or having the ability to change a lot of things. I guess I don't see where the limit is on that. I mean, are we gonna change the creed or are gonna I mean what where where do we put the line here? if he, that in your opinion is, is favorable to his. I so I'm asking you, where do you put the limit? I mean how do you you say okay we have the creed but hey maybe the Holy Spirit is working different now we can do it different now. I don't understand how you could how you, where are you going to, where are you gonna draw the line once you once you open that box. The question is, where do you draw the line once you open the box of allowing any kind of uh, of change? Would it extend as far as the creed or something along that line? Well, um, I would suggest that certain things are, uh, the dogmas of the church are unchanging and are unnegotiable, and we're not really talking about those those kinds of issues. I would say, however, that the historic church meeting an Ecumenical Council felt the freedom to change the creed. And that there I, I'm not saying that we ever will, but the fathers at Nicaea sure believed that they could write a creed and and it, that would be a, uh, an authoritative expression of the faith and then that creed was modified at 381 at Constantinople and it was supplemented at 451 with another uh, statement now, when the pope tried to unilaterally change the creed in 1054 the argument wasn't that the creed by itself could not ever be changed but that the pope didn't have the authority by himself apart from an ecumenical council to make the change in the creed that had been adopted by an ecumenical council so the kind of changes broadly spoken by that like that could only be made if there was an ecumenical council that would hold to that uh, or uh, would uh, uh, agree to that Uh, And I would hold that Orthodox ecclesiology uh, would state that we didn't finally end in 787 any discussion about any kind of doctrinal issues that, theoretically speaking, even though we haven't had an ecumenical council in a thousand years, we could open up, say, even the issue of ecclesiology and talk about what uh, what that would mean and how that would be, uh, pressed out and come to a decision led by the power of the Holy Spirit that would not be a rejection of what took place before, but a living continuation of the same spirit in the, uh, in, in the church. Now, there are significant cultural differences between the Orthodox churches that exist, and that's mostly what I'm, in my mind, thinking about. You know, you have a Byzantine musical style in the Greek churches and the Antiochian churches, and you have a whole different musical style in the Russian uh, churches and the Serbian churches and so forth. And that developed through the uh, life and experience of the people in those particular cultures. And we don't sit back and say, well, only Byzantine music is truly Orthodox, although there might be somebody that would uh, say that, the music of, uh, of heaven. But most of us would say that the Holy Spirit continues to lead and develop and and uh, so forth in that cultural situation, and that that uh, that doesn't necessarily transpose itself permanently and completely into another culture easily. You have to, you know. That's why the, the, our church has always had vernacular language liturgies, where we we bring the language, the liturgy in the language of of the people, and it becomes an expression of of, of them. And I suspect that. Uh, In the United States and Canada, over 300 or 400 years, there will develop a whole body of cultural experience and expression that is of Orthodox people living on this continent that has that kind of, uh, you know, that is expression of our experience, as was in Russia after 400 or 500 years. I, I have not a clue. About uh, what that, but I'm just saying that the freedom for that to take place should happen, and we just can't limit ourselves to doing only the music that was done in Constantinople in the 11th century. I would suggest that's not the Orthodox tradition. We're down to the end here, and time. Uh, Any last question? If not, if you think of some others, write them out. We have tomorrow evening to try to deal with them. I want to say how much of a privilege and a joy it's been for me to be with you. I hope I haven't totally confused you. I hope you've learned something. You don't have to agree with me on anything. But uh, pray for me, and God will bless his holy church.